I'm Natalie Pearson at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre and I'm recording this podcast for the Politics in Action 2018 event. And I'm joined by Jail Serrano Cornelio. And would you be able to start by introducing yourself, telling us uh, where you work and what your research is looking on? Of course. Thanks for inviting me, Natalie. Mm-hmm. Okay, my name is Jail Cornelio. I am an associate professor and the director of the Development Studies Program at the Ateneo de Manila University. At the moment, I'm also a visiting professor at the Divinity School of Chungchi College at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, where I'm teaching a graduate class. I am a sociologist of religion. Um, And I work a lot on religious change and how it is relating to the state and politics in the Philippines and some other parts of Southeast Asia. I'm very much intrigued by the role religion plays in civil society. Mm, Mm. Thank you. Mm. Um, So, Jail, would you be able to start by giving us a big picture overview of the political situation in the Philippines at the moment? Great. I'll be approaching it from the point of view of a sociologist. Right. It's kind of difficult to pin down the political climate of the Philippine society today because it's a divided society. If you talk to, say, human rights activists, academics, or journalists, many of us would say that, oh, democracy is in shambles, the institutions are weakened, and we do not know whether the future is still bright for many of us. But if you talk to the majority, that's not the story that they would tell you. Uh, the, the, The greater public in the Philippines would say that, oh, democracy is so much stronger, we are being led by um, somebody who really knows what he's doing and he's out there to protect all of us against crime and illegal drugs and corruption and so forth. So I think it's important for us to understand this tension uh, that exists in Philippine society when we talk about developments that are happening in the country today. Mm. Uh, I know that um, uh, many of our listeners come from abroad and they might see the Philippines only in terms of what Duterte is doing and his war on drugs and think of everything in the Philippines as in shambles. But um, the public in the Philippines would not necessarily resonate with that sentiment. That's right. I think a lot of what we see from the outside is about uh, criticism of extrajudicial killings, Mm. um, Philippines standing up in terms of land claims in the South China Sea, but it's quite interesting to think about it from, you know, far more domestic perspective. Exactly, Mm. exactly. Domestic and really relevant and important and close to the hearts of people. Mm. That's right. It can't be overlooked. It can't be overlooked, yeah. Mm. Populism, people talk about leaders, the strongmen, but populism is also an issue of the public. You mm. know, there are populist supporters and there are populist individuals who, to whom the populist leader caters. So yeah. do you, would you use that to explain Duterte's enduring popularity in the Philippines, this idea that um, he's a strongman, but um, I think Nicole Curato talks mm. about it as the politics of anxiety and the exactly. politics of hope, right? That's right, that's right, yes. Um, I, I would echo many of the things that Nicole herself uh, has said about uh, the current conditions in the Philippines. So on one, w- what, what is interesting about Duterte is that he embodies both the anxieties and the hopes of people mm. uh, in the sense that Duterte presents himself as the savior, as the one who could uh, make things happen, somebody who has the political will. Um, and he does that by invoking the anxieties of the public. Uh, criminality, illegal drugs, corruption, things that bother mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, this is what sets him apart, continues to set him apart from um, other politicians in the Philippines. So up until now, whenever he does something, it goes back to 
what people see as his political will, his ability to get rid of corrupt officials, for example, uh, not just the criminals, not just the drug addicts. I know that we are very much concerned about that, but many people celebrate also the way he has handled uh, corruption in the bureaucracy. Yep. Uh, these are things that we don't necessarily pick up in well, the international media. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, given the, the absence of it sort of in the international media? Mm. What, what have his measures on corruption been? D right, okay. Um, maybe we can just identify a few things. Um, recently, uh, his own secretaries, um, he asked them to resign, um, assistant secretaries, undersecretaries in the bureaucracy, those who have been simply accused of corruption, um, he has given them the, uh, just the, you know, the opportunity to resign <laughs> instead of simply just kicking them out. Right. And uh, uh, okay. many people see that as his uh, diplomatic attempt to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to get rid of corruption in the government. Uh, having, 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 having said that, it is also that political will, if you will, that he has used against the opposition. Mm. Um, Senator Laila de Lima, who is still in jail, one of the most staunchest um, critiques in his first year or so, is still in jail. And, and uh, recently we know that the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Arena herself, mm. uh, was ousted from the Supreme Court, oh, even though deliberately we don't see the hand of Duterte there, but the president himself has branded her mm. as his personal enemy. Mm. So you see a pattern that mm. if you are a critique of the president, and if you're a strong woman, by the way, right. you tend to be uh, tagged as, number one, the enemy of the government, and number two, the enemy of Duterte himself. So the chief justice was ousted after speaking out against the war on drugs, is that right? And um, the extrajudicial killings? Um, well, not just the war on drugs, but it all began... Uh, some people would say it all began uh, with a speech that she delivered at the commencement of uh, graduating students at the Ateneo de Manila. So she was a keynote speaker there mm. years ago, a year or two ago, and uh, she talked about the burial of uh, Ferdinand Marcos in the National Heroes Cemetery, or what Filipinos would call the Bina ng mga Bayani. And uh, that was a divisive issue. And for Chief Justice Sereno, uh, she, all she was saying at that time was that we need to be very mindful of what we teach our uh, the next generation. Mm -hmm. And, and this, is a, this is an issue that is very close to, um, to the professors and students of Ateneo de Manila and also of the University of the Philippines because many of our students were killed as human rights activists uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. Underneath the Marcos regime. Yes. 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 yes Under the Marcos regime. Um, do you think she will continue to be an outspoken voice now that she's no longer in a in a formal position? Right. Um, she has yet to exhaust uh, all legal remedies appealing to the Supreme Court, which she used to lead. Yes. I don't know uh, how that pans out in the future, or um, or uh, I don't know what other uh, legal remedies there might be. But but many people are starting to 
uh, ask her to be the voice of the opposition. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether that is a wise move at this point in time, simply because the president is complete, is thoroughly popular in the Philippines. So any other opposition uh, figure will mm. simply be branded as a puppet of the liberal party or yeah. the opposition and who doesn't know what he or she is talking about. And she might burn up her political capital in the meantime. That's right, yeah. that's right. So this is not the best time to do it. So could you tell us what are some of the recent developments in the Philippines in terms of, for example, improving macroeconomic figures and, and whether or not they translate to enhanced quality of life for mm, regular Filipinos? No, 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 thank you for bringing that up. Um, this is one of the things that not many people are also talking about. Uh, yes, we know that the Philippines is one of the fastest uh, growing economies in the in, in the region, uh, next to China and Vietnam, if I'm not mistaken. And this has translated to very good macroeconomic figures in terms of, uh, for example, our unemployment has gone down uh, to 5.4%. It used to be around 6 or 7 in the in the past decade or so, much higher than that, definitely. Uh, our underemployment, uh, this is a figure that refers to uh, the phenomenon of seeking a job even though you're still employed mm. it means that your employment is not sufficient for you and uh, to sustain your needs uh, it that also has gone down from 20 to about 18 percent um, in terms of our uh, GNP per capita uh, that is also growing mm. and there are projections that by as early as late next year 2019 the Philippines will already be uh, an upper-middle-income economy uh, because of that, that figure. So if you look at the macroeconomic figures, it seems that, oh, the Philippines is improving. Mm. The Philippine economy is no longer the segment of Asia that, that, that it might have been you know, in, mm. the, in the past. Uh, the only problem, however, is that from the point of view of not just economists, but also sociologists like myself, we are aware that the economy, the economic economic growth, does not necessarily translate to improving the quality of life mm. of the poorest of the poor. And who are these folks in the Philippines? These are your fishermen and also your agricultural workers, your farmers. Mm. Uh, in other words, uh, the poor, many of them remain poor. The rich, if you're middle class, if you're highly educated, you would certainly benefit from the economic growth of the country. Thank you. And do you think building an investment in infrastructure can alleviate poverty? Mm. Ha, smart question. This is in fact one of the uh, uh, centerpiece policies of the administration. Um, it's called build, build, build. The government, uh, yeah, yeah, it's really funny, right? We have to repeat it three times. Yeah, because I mean, this is very Filipino. Yeah, we have to, to insist and to assert Just something. to make the point. Just to make the point. Make no mistake about it. We're going to build. Build and more, build some more. <laughs> uh, the government has touted this as this era to be the golden era of infrastructure development in the country. Mm. Um, investing billions of dollars to... Uh, uh, constructing roads, um, ports, uh, even our light rail transit or metro, our subways in Metro Manila, mm. in Mindanao. I think there are about 75 projects already um, in the pipeline. Uh, the government sees this as, uh, as a pump priming mechanism mm. to uh, uh, spur economic growth, yes, but also, but also employment. Mm. And 
the government itself has said that uh, the country would need its engineers uh, back home. As you know, many of our engineers and professionals are working mm -hmm. as overseas Filipino workers around the world. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and this has led to brain drain yeah. uh, in the past uh, decade, or oh, well, in the past decades, since the 1980s, 1970s. Uh, so this is a good thing in the sense that, yes, uh, it would be generating a lot of employment for Filipinos, but many economists are also very suspicious mm. because um, we don't know how sustainable this might be in, mm. the, in, the, in the long run or whether everything could be finished, say, within the administration of President Duterte. And the truth is, no, uh, many of them won't be finished. The, the improvement of the metro system in Manila, mm. for example, won't, be, won't finish until 2025. And there's a bit of a gap there, isn't there? Because that's mm. seven years out, and yet they've already introduced these measures to um, ban the jeepneys, which are the cheap forms of yes, public transport yes, in yes. Manila. So yes. that's going to leave a lot of people without a viable way of getting around Metro Manila uh, before that that system is built that you're talking about, and with you know without the jeepneys. That's right, and this is why um, some policymakers accuse the government of not planning well. Mm, yeah. uh, this is this is just one of the many other examples how the changes are dramatic to a certain extent much needed also because mm. of the environmental impact of very old jeepneys and vehicles on the road and mm. also their impact on traffic but you have to manage change mm. in the country and and what, what do you do the solution was of course to make um, electric vehicles uh, accessible you know to 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 uh, to these drivers through what through cooperatives and through mm. their own uh, organizations mm. you know their their unions but uh, this is not necessarily viable many people uh, many of these organizations jeepney organizations resist and continue to resist that uh, intervention mm. and mm -hmm. in the meanwhile it's the commuters who, who continue to suffer also, <laughs> yes, yes, of course, of course. And this is a problem in the Fili in Metro Manila in particular. Yeah. Outside Metro Manila, this may not necessarily be a, a, right. a big issue. But Metro Manila is a different issue altogether because uh, we have about 15 million mm. in Metro Manila alone. So that's what, roughly 15% or so of the entire population. That's right. So it really yeah. does affect a significant proportion of mm. the Filipino society. Mm. Um, Turning to a different issue now, can you tell us about the consultative committee that's been set up to review the provisions of the Constitution? I think the Constitution is, what, mm. 30 years old, 1987, is that right? Yes. Yeah, 31 years old. So that's right. So why, why is this being done now, and is it, is it going to go anywhere? Mm. Uh, the big push for constitutional change has to do with federalism. Uh, this is exactly what uh, Duterte uh, proposed and consistently talked about when he was still campaigning. And many people are now uh, pushing for that. Many of the members of the Constitutional Advisory Committee are sympathetic to the, to the federal form of government. And the idea is that the Philippines is an archipelago uh, with so many regions that need to be empowered and need to have their own fiscal autonomy mm. uh, in order for them to develop on their own. So mm. they wouldn't be reliant on, say, the National Capital Region, Metro Manila, or the, natu na the National Resources. Uh, in principle, that's good, although many political scientists are also hesitant 
about this uh, push for federalism, which will be clearly present in the constitutional change uh, as it is being designed right now as you speak, because they feel that empowering regions to become autonomous units on their own will simply empower also your political dynasties there. So this is a very big issue that needs to be confronted. Um, Some studies show that at least 70% of our congressmen, our representatives, and uh, local government officials come from political dynasties. And there is a strong... 70%? 70%. And there is a strong correlation Mm -hmm. between being run by a political dynasty and poverty. Right. Yeah. So, so, so. In terms of a region, region or or a local government or a municipality or a town. Right. Yeah. So there's that there's that very strong correlation according to according to to research. So federalism is one of the big push. It's it's a big push uh, for constitutional change, but also it has to do with um, uh, private ownership uh, of uh, corporations and companies and uh, and property in the in the Philippines. Mm. Um, This is identified in the ten point economic agenda of Duterte uh, to allow more investors to invest uh, in private companies uh, in the Philippines. Right now, uh, the constitution is very nationalistic, Mm. so only Filipinos are allowed to Mm. have a majority stake on um, uh, private companies. Uh, They're also talking about this. There are many other considerations in the, in the constitutional change, but I think these are the big two issues. Right. So they're talking about opening those those investment yes. regulations up. Yes. Much wider. Yes. Okay. Yes, much wider. Yeah, because that research shows is also correlated to economic growth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, Jay, you you a lot of your research looks at religion, as yes. you said before. Can you tell us more about this idea of church's opposition? Oh. Wow. <laughs> The church, in particular Catholicism, has played a very big role in establishing democracy in the Philippines. I don't think that's deniable. Um, We know that the Catholic Church was the antithesis of the Marcos regime in the 1980s, precisely because there was no other institution that could stand Mm. to, to Ferdinand Marcos at that time. So from then on, we know that uh, the church has resisted policies and supported certain other policies mm. uh, that it thought was moral or was good for society. Um, I make the case, though, that the public role of the church, Christianity, in part- Roman Catholicism in particular, in civil society or in, pu- in the public sphere, uh, is, has been waning in the past years because research already shows that many people do not want priests to use the pulpit to talk about politics. So I think many people are reflexive already about the spiritual nature of their their faith and more interested in Mm -hmm. um, listening to their priests talk about spiritual issues than, say, political issues. I think there's that, if you will, religious slash political fatigue mm-hmm. <laughs> or political fatigue among religious yes. people. In so the church is a place of respite from the political discussion. Exactly. Perhaps. Unfortunately, uh, or fortunately or unfortunately, mm-hmm. the Catholic Church continues to see itself as, right. as, 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 a, as a prophet. Voice. Right. As a political voice because yeah. it, it comes from, it emanates from its 
uh, prophetic role, mm. how the Catholic the Catholic Church sees itself as uh, as, a, as the conscience of society. Um, one big issue uh, about five years ago or so, uh, for example, was the reproductive health bill, right. which now is a law, simply a law that mandates the accessibility of um, contraceptives, artificial mm. contraceptives. The West, places like Australia, <laughs> may take this for granted, but the availability of condoms and, mm. and other artificial contraceptives became legal in the Philippines only in about 2012 or 2013. And then mm. it was contested also in Supreme Court, but things have, uh, have been confirmed already. But the Catholic Church resisted that to the extent that some bishops or some priests have demonized politicians. Mm. Uh, that backfired. That backfired precisely because 70% of Filipino Catholics already at that time were very supportive of the reproductive health bill. Mm. And also within the Catholic Church, you have theologians and priests who could not be public about their position mm. who were sympathetic to, right. uh, to the policy because they knew that this was very much needed also, uh, especially by the poor. Of course, the church resisted that because of their theological uh, views about procreation and sexual intercourse mm. and so forth. And they play out not just in the Philippines, of course. Yes, yes, and so, yeah. and so, 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 you in con in view of all of these um, waning public influence, if you will, the church right now uh, treads on thin ice, if you will, mm. whenever it speaks against uh, the president. The president could simply, mm. uh, you know, hit back by saying that you are hypocrites, you don't know what's going on, um, mm. on the ground. So is there a risk for the church there uh, if they continue to be this sort of prophet that you're talking about, this political voice? If they continue to pursue that, if priests are continuing to talk about politics in the pulpit, um, is there a risk people will pull away from the church? It can backfire. It mm. can work for some segments of the population, but can, it can also backfire. My own book, uh, my first uh, monograph was about what it means to be Catholic to young Filipinos. It was published in 2016, straight from my dissertation, from my PhD. And there I already documented how young people are harboring, to put it lightly, negative sentiments towards the church because they think that the church is not attending to the spiritual needs mm. of its flock, mm -hmm. uh, focusing instead on reproductive health and politics, and sometimes even hiding many of its cases of corruption, and in some cases, very minor, ca minor cases, but also very significant uh, sexual abuse cases. Mm. Um, so in this sense, the Catholic Church has a lot of soul-searching to do, if mm. I may put it that way, mm. about its uh, big role to play in civil society today. In my view as a sociologist, it is an influential and important civil society actor, but it has to reimagine what it means to be exactly that mm -hmm. in 21st century Philippines. Right. Yeah? Can, yeah. Do, does it still want to maintain that political, uh, political voice that might in the end simply alienate other people? Or does it want to evolve into something much more effective? Mm. The war on drugs, for example, very big issue right now. We know that the church has consistently and persistently uh, critiqued the administration for all the what it considers extrajudicial killings, murders of drug suspected drug addicts without due process, mm. and so forth. Uh, but 
that does not necessarily resonate with the greater public that mm-hmm. is in in fact supportive of the war on drugs mm-hmm. because they think that that is a necessary intervention it's a it's a it's a bitter pill uh, to swallow mm-hmm. but necessary anyway to, right. to, you know, to get to, to be to make the country safer but that's a public sentiment mm-hmm. so how does the church interface with that um, and the answer I think lies in what many other Catholic churches are doing at the level of the parish. Mm. So my own research right now in an urban poor community in Manila about how the Catholic Church there responds to the war on drugs. Yes, they're very critical, they're very vocal about this, but they're also doing a lot of help for the victims of the war on drugs. Legal support, trauma management, okay. welfare, education, scholarships, and so forth. Mm. I think it is in this regard that the Catholic Church might become more yeah. relevant, but I have to say that that's, that's, that's far more difficult. Absolutely, especially rolling that out across the entire Philippines, you know, yes. in every parish. Yes, yes, yes. But, but many, many priests are already aware that this must be done. Mm. Um, look, I'd like to finish up by asking or inviting you to perhaps reflect on some of the opportunities or uh, prospects for optimism looking forward in the Philippines. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Optimism. Okay. Okay. I've been accused of siding with the opposition all the time. <laughs> you know, every time I write for Rappler, for example, people would accuse me of being Dilawan. This is a colloquial term for being part of the other liberal party, which this is not really true. I have to say this on record. <laughs> Listen up. For, for all the world to hear, right? <laughs> um, I think the opportunities and the hopes lie in what the president himself could accomplish in terms of eradicating corruption. I have to admit that uh, the president has is seen, okay? Uh, th- of course, there are several allegations that he's very much sympathetic to his own close friends, and so if they have allegations of corruption, he wouldn't really do much, mm. right? But if it's just an ordinary, um, or like, like a, just a, an ordinary bureaucrat, then, then he would be very easy. It would be very easy, much easier for him to let them go. Uh, but the public really sees himself as as a man of action mm. who can clean things up in the government. And for the ordinary Filipino, this matters. This, this is Th- yeah. important. Yeah, this is very important mm. because it strikes at the core of their day-to-day living. Mm. You know, you go to the government, apply for a driver's license, buy... Uh, most likely, you have to bribe uh, the person on the other side of the window, yep. you know, just to get it. Uh, most of the time, okay. I mean, even I have experienced that, mm. and the system, in many ways, is designed to facilitate to facilitate that, to favor that. that, to yeah. favor that mm. And and so, if you're a, if you're a moral Filipino, if you will, you know, it, it's not something that you can simply escape. Yeah. Um, right. So 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 this is um, so if the president could sustain all this and make sure that this is not simply just because of his personality, if systems could be um, revamped in such a way structurally. that... Structurally. Yeah, structurally, yeah. yeah. Because at this point, and this, I guess, is the weakness also of the administration, mm. it is beholden to the To the figure, personality. To yeah. the personality. Yeah. So the strong man is both the strength and the weakness sure. of this administration. Yeah. This is uh, both an opportunity and a liability. A for vulnerability. The administration. A yeah. vulnerability, susceptibility, liability, yeah. I would put it that way too. Okay. Mm. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Are we done? I think we're done. We're done. I thought we were just warming up. We're just warming up. (laughs) Yeah, but thank you so much for the interview. I enjoyed it.